as I mentioned earlier, uh, during the baptism, this the wrath of God. If you surveyed opinions on the wrath of God, you'd soon discover that people have problems with it. I mean, atheists like Richard Dawkins, who in his book, God Delusion, describes Christian teaching on God's wrath as a form of child abuse. I mean, professing Christians have problems with it. Richard Niebuhr once observed how liberal Christianity diminishes God's wrath to the point of preaching a different gospel. To use his words, they believe a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. J.I. Packer later made a similar observation in his book, Knowing God. The modern habit, he says, throughout the Christian church is to play down the wrath of God to an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will. The church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about his judgment. I have another book by... Paul Copen, in which uh, he answers those who object that God's wrath against the Canaanites, for example, makes him a moral monster. People struggle with the wrath of God, but when we come to the scriptures, the apostles and prophets speak of God's wrath without embarrassment. Uh, They find it terrifying. It raises some of the gloomiest laments and and woes in Scripture. But without hesitation, they announce God's wrath and acknowledge it as right. Revelation is no exception. Coming to chapter 16, we encounter God's wrath against the beast and his kingdom. So the question is, what should we make of it? Is God's anger a good thing? Uh, Is it right? And how should we respond? Hopefully, by the end of verse 11, we can say with heaven, true and just are your judgments, O Lord God Almighty. So let's let's read. uh, Let's read God's word, starting from verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died. That was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. 
And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. We'll stop there. Last time we gathered, uh, John introduced seven angels with seven plagues. And these plagues come in response to the boasts of God's enemies. In chapter 13, verse 4, people are so impressed by the beast, they shout, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And God then answers with a sign that, that undermines their boasts. Seven angels appear with seven bowls filled with, filled with God's wrath. And with them, God will topple the beast's throne and dash his kingdom to pieces. But to understand these better, these, these bowls a little better, let's, let's ask a few questions here. First, how should we approach these seven bowls? How should we approach them? A first thing to remember is their origin. Uh, in chapter 15, verse 6, these seven angels come from God's temple in heaven, uh, which is the place of God's enthroned presence. So these bowls of wrath are coming from God. Uh, God will pour out these bowls. Sometimes this language of pouring out appears with blessings, like when God pours out the Holy Spirit uh, at Pentecost. Here, though, it appears with curses or wrath. And when you trace this language back to the prophets, this pouring out wrath meant that God was enacting a judgment on earth. Okay? He was speaking from heaven, and this image, this heavenly imagery of him pouring something out was, 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 was in heaven, but he was enacting a judgment on earth. He caused these terrible consequences like drought and famine and sword and exile and pestilence or, or simply handing people over to their own devices at times. He would remove the restraint and, and let evil run its course on earth. And the same sorts of events transpire here with the bowls. But something else you'll notice are allusions to the plagues on Egypt. Perhaps you thought of that yourself when you heard uh, of painful sores, or boils, right? Or, or the water turning to blood or, or his kingdom being plunged into darkness. Again, Revelation is, is depicting our salvation as a new and, and greater exodus. And part of, of getting his people out of Egypt was actually putting plagues on uh, their oppressors in response to the people's cries. And he's going to do, do likewise for the church. God will send plagues on, on, uh, on our enemies in response to our cries. Just like we saw uh, the martyrs crying under the altar, how long, O Lord? Well, now their prayers have, have filled the bowls here, and, and now God is responding and pouring out judgment on their oppressors. Also, Exodus 12 views the plagues on Egypt as God executing 
judgment, not just on the Egyptians, but on the Egyptians' gods, the gods of Egypt. The plagues were supposed to prove that there was no other god like Yahweh in all the earth. He turned creation against Egypt to demonstrate his power so that everyone would know, including people like Rahab in Canaan, so that everyone would know that the earth is the Lord's, that he alone is glorious in power. And the same is true of these bold judgments. So how should we approach these bowls? Well, they are, they are judgments from the presence of God enacted against the enemies of God for the sake of the people of God to the praise of the glory of God. Now, whatever details we might not yet understand fully about these plays, we can all agree there and make that our starting point. Now, having said that, let's answer a, question, a, a second question. What do these bowls represent? What do these bowls represent? We'll only discuss the first five and save six and seven for, for next Sunday, but, but broadly speaking, they represent judgments against the beast and his followers. Okay, we see that especially in verse 2. It starts with a bowl of God's wrath poured out, it says, on the earth. Uh, but notice it's not affecting the land or the trees Uh, It harms the beast's followers. It says, harmful and painful sores came upon the people, which people, who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. You can think back to the Exodus, uh, right, when God is pouring out his plagues on the Egyptians. What is he doing to his people? He's protecting them from those plagues. The same is true with the bold judgments. In the bold judgments, God will target only his enemies. His enemies will suffer painful sores, much like Egypt suffered the boils. Uh, In the sixth plague of Exodus chapter 9, when Deuteronomy 28 later reflects on these boils uh, that fell on the Egyptians, it says that they they were sores which cannot be healed. That's what these sores will be like. There's no antidote from a doctor. Humanity will not cure it. Also, if you return to Exodus 9, what's peculiar is that Moses says the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. With some of the plagues, the magicians were able to use their secret arts to kind of replicate the miracles going on. But in this case, they weren't. And what we see in, in, in the Exodus story is that God was increasingly humiliating them before his servant Moses. It was something they couldn't control. And the same is happening here with the first bowl. Painful sores on the beast's followers is this image of God humiliating the people, only this time it's before his servant Jesus. The sores will undo the beast's followers. Bowl number two then speaks of judgment falling on the sea. Verse three, the sea became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now in chapter eight, verse nine, with the second trumpet, right? Only a third, it says a third of the living creatures died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Well, here, everything in the sea dies. This sounds like the first plague of Exodus 7.18 where all the fish died in the waters, only only it's much worse. And it's universal. 
But there's more to it than this. Back in chapter 13, verse 1, where did, where did the first beast rise from? He rose from the sea. And when we covered chapter 10, verse 2, I showed you a, a relief of first century Rome, right? And this statue, this majestic statue of, with, with one foot on the sea and one foot on the, on the land, right? Rome was one manifestation of the beast and Rome acted like it ruled the seas. They controlled commerce on the seas. They made themselves rich using the seas. And what is this picture of? It's God upending everything. That's why later in chapter 18, verse 19, those whose trade was on the sea, they weep and they cry. In a moment, all of their wealth is gone. All that they're left with is death. What's the point? The point is that if you put your hope in the beast's power and in the beast's riches, it will only leave you with death. Bowl number three affects the rivers and springs of water. In verse four, they too become blood. Again, this reaches back to the plague on, on Egypt, the first plague on Egypt where the, the waters that they would have enjoyed for drinking end up turning to blood. They become filled with death. Exodus 7.18 says that it made the Egyptians weary. So also here, God will leave the beast's followers weary with death. Now this stands in total contrast to the lamb's followers, doesn't it? Back in chapter 7, verse 17, what are the lamb's people drinking from? They're drinking from the river of the spring of life. Not the beast followers, though. Their end is death. I'll come back to verses 5 to 7 in a minute. Move now to bowl number 4 in verse 8. The first angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, it says, who had power over these plagues. Again, this is the opposite of what God's people enjoy. In chapter 7, verse 16, the Lord shelters them such that the sun does not strike them meaning they're not in this blistering wilderness any longer. That's not the case for the beast followers. In the end, God will use creation itself, the sun, and, he will par- and it will partner with God to make the people of the beast miserable. And then comes a fifth bowl of wrath in verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness People gnawed their tongues in anguish and and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. Again, darkness. It's reaching back to those plagues that we remember from Exodus. Exodus chapter 10 says that it was a darkness to be felt. It was a pitch darkness. It was a darkness that isolated you and disabled you. And that's what God does here to the beast's throne and to his kingdom. Everyone who belongs to the beast will be plunged into darkness. If you follow the beast, God will leave you isolated and undone in a world of darkness. That's the first five bolts. So in bowl number one, God humiliates the beast's followers directly 
In bowls two, three, and four, God undermines their economy and leaves them desperately thirsty in a scorching wilderness. And then in bowl five, God attacks the beast throne and plunges his kingdom into a despairing darkness. So in sum, these these bowls represent the final undoing of the beast's kingdom. In chapter 13, verse 4, they all said, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? By the time you get to the end of chapter 16, who's going to boast in the beast now? A third question. When are the bowls poured out? When are the bowls poured out? This is a fun one. Some might argue they already happened. Others might say they run parallel to the seals and the trumpets. But several things lead me another way. For starters, I understand the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl to signify the same event, the return of Christ. Each describes thunder, lightning, earthquake. So if you go back and read each the seventh seal, seventh bowl, uh, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl. They all have the same type of events in each. They're, they're all, all these events happen when, when God appears in the person of Jesus. So each series of seven takes us to the very end and then wraps back a bit to unveil a little more of what's going to happen next. So if that's true, well, then God's pouring out his bowls prior to Jesus' return. But, but then we encounter other clues like, Chapter 15, verse 1, it explains how these seven bowls are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Also, the seal judgments affects only a fourth of the earth, and the trumpets affect only a third of the earth, but the bowl judgments, they affect all of the earth. So this is increasing Uh, There's this escalation in judgment. There's also no interlude between the sixth and seventh bowls like there was in the sixth, between the sixth and seventh seals and trumpets. In other words, there's, there's no more delay. The time for final judgment has arrived. So this is a drawing. If if we can get that on the screen. Uh, This is a drawing. You've seen it before with respect to the seals and trumpets. This is how I see the bowls playing out, unfolding in history along side uh, the seals and trumpets. They, they bring us to the, to the, the bowls bring us to the very end of history, but they're not necessarily limited to the last three and a half years, as, someone, as some might want to argue. Now, you may put things together a little differently. There's room for us to sharpen one another about the temporal details here. Ultimately, we don't know. But here's what we do know. Following the beast into false worship leads to misery. We can all agree on that. Following the beast into false worship leads to misery. Which brings me to another question. Why are these bowls of wrath poured out? Why are these bowls of wrath poured out? The text gives several answers. One is false worship. Look at verse 2. The sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast 
and worshipped its image. How do you know they belong to the beast? They worship false gods. Throughout Revelation, God alone is worthy of worship. Chapter 4, verse 11 is a, is a perfect illustration of that. Worthy are you, they say. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So everyone owes God worship because he is their creator. He gives them life. He gives them breath. He gives them everything. And the problem is that the people trade the creator for lies. They do not worship God and give thanks to him. According to chapter 13, verse 4, people trade the truth about God for the lies of the beast, and they worship the beast instead. And this deserves judgment. Another reason that these bowls of wrath are poured out is persecution, the persecution of God's people, the oppression of God's people. Notice the explanation in verse 5. I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For, here's the explanation why, they have shed or poured out the blood of the saints. There's a play on words there. They have poured out the blood of the saints. God is pouring out wrath on them. They have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. They put to death God's people. And so God gives them death to drink. Notice how the altar also answers. And, re and remember, remember what the altar represents. That's where the martyrs are in chapter 6, verse 9. That's where the martyrs are crying, how long, O Lord? That altar, that same altar now answers. They see these bowls and they say, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Another reason for the bowls of, of wrath is hardness of heart. Remember, this final outpouring has followed uh, the... Uh, the, the seal judgments, which were a lesser judgment, and the trumpet judgments, which were a lesser judgment than this one. So what we're seeing throughout the book of Revelation is throughout, is throughout history, God is patient, long-suffering. People, people shake their fists in God's face every day. They ignore Him. They do not give Him thanks, and yet, he causes the sun to rise upon them in the morning. He sends the rains upon the just and the unjust. This is the kind of God he is. He gives them breath. People deserve immediate judgment, and yet he delays. But only for so long, the time for repentance will eventually run out, and when the bowls come, the judgments will prove that those committed to the beast had truly hardened themselves against God. Listen to the response in verse 9. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Verse 10, they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. 
what we see here is that God is handing people over to what they deserve and ultimately to what they want in their hardened state. They want an existence without God, and an existence without God is miserable. So God hands them over to it. Last question, and a question we all need to wrestle with. How should these bowls impact us? How should these bowls impact us? Well, one, I think these bowls, these bowl judgments, they help us know God. They help us to know God. You know, if we're not careful, we reduce our knowledge of God to those aspects that we find easier to accept. God is creator. God is love. God is faithful. God is abundant in mercy. Maybe it's easy for the church to speak of these things. But the bowls of wrath remind us that God is also holy. And holiness requires that he takes sin seriously. He is love. But genuine love abhors what is evil. He is faithful, but he's faithful to do what's right by his own goodness. These bold judgments help us know that God is not one who tolerates evil. Evil displeases him. At the same time, they show us that the wrath of God is always just and true. Wrath is a a word that we use to signify a, a state of intense displeasure. Right? And, and you see this in, in different places in Scripture. And, uh, like, for example, Satan is said to have wrath back in chapter 12. He's in a fit of rage, knowing that his time of short. Humans are also said to have wrath. In fact, Colossians, uh, Colossians 3 tells, tells Christians that they need to put away wrath and anger. And in both cases, we'd say that there are some problems with those expressions of wrath, wouldn't we? But when wrath describes God's response to evil, it doesn't come with all the deficiencies and and imperfections like like we find in his fallen human creatures. No, as we see in verse 5 to 7, heaven acknowledges that God's wrath is an expression of his holiness. Just are you, O holy one, they say. Heaven acknowledges that God's Wrath is just and true. J.I. Packer once put it this way, God's wrath is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ennoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. To know God means accepting all that God reveals about himself, including his wrath toward evil. Wrath is not an essential attribute of God. 
but toward evil, wrath is the necessary response of his holiness, goodness, and love. This aspect of God's self-revelation will also help you in defending the faith, believe it or not. People will sometimes object to Christianity on grounds that God is nothing but a crutch. Right? That God is just a pragmatic solution of, of dealing with the pains of life. But I want you to listen to this argument that R.C. Sproul makes in his book, If There Is a God, Why Are There Atheists? He says this, The Christian God has some attractive features that might incline a person to embrace God as a narcotic to help him face the threatening character of life. But these are overwhelmingly outweighed by the trauma of encountering God. Though man may desire and create for himself a deity who meets his needs and provides him with innumerable benefits, he will not instinctively desire a God who is holy, omniscient, and sovereign. He goes on later in the book. He says, The psychologists continue to argue that men like to invent protective deities that will provide them with comfort and security. But they cannot argue that men would invent the intimidating Holy One of Israel. If people wanted a crutch, would they dream up a God who will call them account to their, for their sins? What has happened instead is an encounter with the God who is actually there, the creator of all things, the Holy One of Israel, who has revealed himself to us and offered himself to us in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. So that's one. These bowls help us know God. Second, these bold judgments remind us that the end of all sin and false worship is misery. The end of all sin and false worship is misery. misery. We are susceptible of taking sin too lightly. That's why Jerry Bridges once wrote a book called Respectable Sins. And he addresses sins like frustration, uh, discontentment, ingratitude, impatience, irritability, judgmentalism, gossip, and other sins of the tongue. If not careful, we can treat these sins as no big deal. They could even become respectable in our habits. But I think these pictures of God's wrath and revelation remind us, that, remind us what God thinks of sin. Both sin. The bowls preserve in us a true fear of God and renew in us efforts to keep killing sin in our lives. We could also consider the impact this vision would have on the Christians uh, that are toying with compromise, right? If, if you think back to the letters 
that Jesus sent to the seven churches, right? And, and actually, the, the, the whole book of Revelation is the letter that's supposed to circulate to the seven churches. So part of that letter are the bowl judgments. Think back to the letter that Jesus wrote to Pergamum and Thyatira. And they were toying with compromises, with idolatry. And we talked about what some of that idolatry looks like in our, in our own cultural context, right? We, I gave examples of Christians who are compromising with worldly ideas about human sexuality. And I gave examples of of Christians compromising with ideologies like critical theory and identity politics. I also gave examples where, where Christians fuse their politics with Christianity such that you think that the, 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 the only hope of the kingdom depends on America. I gave examples of others who champion autonomous self-determination and pragmatism. And then there was Sardis and Laodicea, those letters, right? One was soiling their garments with the world, and the other was, was getting comfortable with the riches of Babylon. The beast also added some economic incentives, incentives later in chapter 13, didn't he? Compromise with the beast, and we'll let you buy and sell. You will have a safe and comfortable life if you compromise with the beast. Now, imagine hearing those letters afresh and arriving at the bold judgments. The bold judgments say, don't believe those lies. The beast's mark, it'll leave you comfortable for a while, but in the end, all you will get is misery. Also, consider the drastic contrasts here between the beast followers and the lamb's followers. The beast followers are humiliated before Jesus, but the Christians, back in chapter 14, are reigning with Jesus. The beast followers get a sea of blood. The Christians get a sea of glass in the presence of God. The beast followers get a river of blood, death. Christians drink from the river of life. The beast followers get scorched in the despairing wilderness Christians coming out of the tribulation are sheltered under the wings of their father. The beast followers get a kingdom that is plunged into darkness. When we get to chapter 21 and 22, Christ followers get a kingdom that is saturated with light. Which one do you want? It's not too late. The end has not come. God has preserved your life, 
given you breath this morning and ears to hear this message now before judgment day. Listen to the bulls. Listen to the bulls, adults. Listen to the bulls, children in this room. Don't harden your heart. Repent and give God glory. You see, before the lamb pours out the bowls, he died to save you from them. He bore your wrath on the cross. And he rose again to give you the kingdom of light and life. So believe on him and trust yourself to him. Follow his word and turn away from any compromises with sin and false worship. And finally, for those who belong to the Lamb, the bold judgment should also come as a great comfort to you. The wrath of God is not a comfort to those who do not belong to Christ. But the wrath of God is actually a comfort for those who do. Because now it works for you, not against you. Scripture often highlights the linger, this, this lingering reality that there's often no justice for the innocent. The persecuted church is on the right side. They're doing the right thing. They're following Jesus and giving it everything for him, but they're regularly judged wrongly by the world. Much like Jesus was treated unjustly, his followers are treated unjustly. And so throughout Scripture, we hear these, these cries of God's people. How long, O Lord? In Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12, the nations oppress God's, God's people and, and the faithful cry, How long will you have no mercy? David cries this way in Psalm 13. He's, he's facing these, these evildoers and he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And then again from Asaph in Psalm 74, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? In Revelation 6, 9, the martyrs cry, how long before you avenge our blood? How long? How long? It's a common cry of the saints throughout the scripture as they look upon evil prospering. And perhaps that cry of how long is something you have said recently. Perhaps you have suffered at the hands of godless people. You are not alone in these cries. They are not in vain. In his wrath, God will judge the wicked. So I want you to remember this good news when others mistreat you. Remember this good news when the path of love leads you to care for very hardened and difficult people. Remember this good news when, when others reject your acts of kindness and treat you unjustly. Remember this good news when others try to ruin you for holding fast to Jesus' testimony. God sees you, and in righteous judgments, he will not allow the wicked to prosper forever. The kingdom of the beast will fall, and Jesus' kingdom will be forever. 
And that's what we're going to remind ourselves of again here at the Lord's Supper. Of this hope we have of Jesus' return. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. Would you please use this word to help us endure in the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. Amen.